All aboard the Embit Podcast with Seamus Madan. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Embit Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Madan, and today we are joined by Mike Evans, who is the founder of Grubhub. Today, Mike is going to walk us through his journey from wanting a pizza, building a multi-billion dollar company, to now his recent startup, Fixer, a technology-centric company providing all-in-one handyman services for many types of home repair jobs. He's also the author of the book, Hungry, which discusses his journey founded Grubhub from the beginning stages from just alone to IPO. So first off, Mike, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. Absolutely. So let's start off before Grubhub. You went to MIT studying computer science and electrical engineering. What were some of the most memorable experiences there that helped create the learning blocks for your future successes with Grubhub? Yeah, I mean, you know, going to school, like the the most memorable experience is like the first weekend you're there. So there's something about the first weekend in college. It's a magical time where like you meet more people than you will in that week. Than, than ever any other time in your life. And everybody that you meet is interested in developing relationships quickly. And so the openness of it was great. And so that that continued on into the college experience. I mean, the, MI, the technical classes at MIT were extraordinarily difficult, but they were all team-based approaches. Like we, we worked on problem sets and learning and everything together. Uh, and I think that that started paving the way for having coworkers later in life in terms of working towards a goal, figuring out how to take a problem and break it down into smaller problems that could be ultimately bite-sized that could be that could be taken on individually. And so, yeah, I mean, those are some of the more memorable moments at MIT. I, I also was like tangentially involved with a startup called, oh my gosh, how can I not remember the name right now? There was a start, it was like the precursor to Friendster. And it was like, you know, which was the precursor to MySpace, which was the precursor to Facebook. And so it was called Plan It All. And so like a really, really early version of a of a social network. And I just had a lot of friends that worked on that project. Gotcha. Now that we transition a little bit, Grubhub came to be from you wanting a pizza delivered to your door. How did Grubhub come to light in your bedroom? Could you take us behind the scenes of what was running through your mind at the time? So I wanted a pizza and getting a pizza was a pain in the neck. So you had to go on the yellow pages which are not organized in any sort of meaningful way, right? It's alphabetical. It's the whole city. The city of Chicago is 30 miles north to south or 28 or something like that. And it's like two miles east to west. And so the the restaurants that deliver on the south side don't make it up to the north side. And so you have this list of all these restaurants. Many of them didn't deliver to you. And so that was like a terrible way to find, just discover who delivered to my address. And so the original plan was I was going to make a website that just listed the restaurants that delivered to my zip code, not even my address. It's I had that idea. It took me a little while to get motivated to actually work on it. I, I played a lot of Xbox. I didn't really get the, <laughs> get the job done. And so then fast forward, I had like a really bad day at work, a really bad commute home. I talk about this in the book in Hangry. And then ultimately that motivated me to write the first version of the website. And so the, it started out as a delivery guide, just find the restaurants that deliver to my address. Yeah. And back at the time you founded Grubhub, back in the early 2000s, were restaurants skeptical in the first few years of joining the platform? Because at the time, the iPhone, the first iPhone didn't even release yet. And there were still over 41% of Americans that didn't use the internet. So how did you persuade the restaurants in the very beginning to join the platform? In the very beginning, I failed. I didn't. I did not join the, get them to join. I After I quit my job, so my, my business partner, Matt, he sold the first restaurant. And then I quit my job like two weeks later. And then that first three, four weeks, 
I couldn't sell restaurants. I couldn't get it done. And so uh, the, I wasn't convincing them to join a platform. The, the word platform had not entered my mind. I had a website. I had a dinky website that was a delivery guide. And I wanted them to advertise on the website. So I tried everything. I tried printouts. I tried showing because not everybody had even been on the internet that I was trying to pitch this idea to. I tried, I tried everything. I tried just shoveling information down people's throats about what it was that I was trying to do for them. I was trying to get them advertising and none of that worked. What actually ended up working was a relationship pitch. I, I, I pitched them on this idea. I was like, Hey, I'm an entrepreneur. You're an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, take a chance on me. Not too dissimilar from how you pitched me on being on this podcast, by the way. <laughs> and so like, it turns out that sales is about relationships first. And I'm not even talking about like big enterprise sales that takes two years. Like just talking to a small business owner is a relationship. And, and leaning on that relationship turns out to be the, the sort of number one thing that you can do to, to, to start your sales process, sales career. Yeah, you brought up a great point. A lot of people that have the misconception, businesses are these can be some giant conglomerates and they can be in certain scenarios. But behind those closed doors are a bunch of people that the only way in many cases, especially in sales, that they're getting things done is through relationships. And it's probably the key topic and lesson we've had on the podcast in the past few years is networking and building relationships over time is one of the most important things in creating your career and developing through your career. And with all of the delivery apps rising up many years later, when you guys went public, like DoorDash and Uber sprouting right up, they have still struggled to turn a profit, whereas Grubhub was profitable a majority of the time in the very early stages. However, recently, Grubhub has also struggled to be profitable. What are some of the things that you did in the early stages to make the platform profitable that Grubhub could possibly employ today? So yeah, Grubhub, I, I started in my apartment. There was no investment involved. This idea of like friends and family money. I don't know who those people are. I don't, I didn't have friends and family that money. <laughs> and so, so I just started it. I started writing the software myself. And so there was the technical skill, which is really important that I learned in school, but there was the relationship part too. And so the business was profitable up until we took the first financing. And then we grew into four cities and we were profitable again. We took a second financing. And that's the same thing happened before the third, fourth, and fifth financings and before the IPO and then after the IPO for two years. And the the key really was the service was differentiated and, and not just differentiated. It wasn't just different from everybody else out there because Uber Eats and DoorDash, they showed up late in the scene. There had been a hundred competitors prior to them. There was Groupon, Living Social, both of them launched online ordering platforms. There was Order Up and campus food and seamless. There's There was hundreds of competitors. And the thing that was different about Grubhub is the, the food was better. And it sounds crazy, but like when you got the food, it was better. And like, we didn't cook the food. We didn't even deliver the food at the time, but we made sure through our systems and through statistical analysis and understanding how the experience went for customers and feedback loops, we made sure that the best restaurants were the ones delivering the food. And so we had customers who repeated with us again and again and again. They would order twice a, twice a week all year long, 100 orders per year. And when that's how we were profitable. We didn't have to keep spending money to acquire customers. We, we had loyal, frequent customers. That's not true for any of the large players right now. And so like at a, at a high level, I can say, well, they need to figure out how to differentiate so the product is better, so that they have repeat customers. That's that's easy. It's easy to say. It's hard to do. On the bright side, like the the party is over in terms of there's an infinite amount of cash to just pay for customers. I mean, DoorDash just laid off 500 people. Like 
the I just am going to spend out the nose for customers and outspend everybody else, DoorDash can't do that anymore. And so it's going to become a matter of who has the best product for customers. And so doubling down on that makes sense. I think Grubhub's partnership with Amazon is going to help a lot in the short term. In the long term, it will be a prisoner's dilemma because they're going to be very dependent on a large player for their business. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. It's great in the short term, but you got to find a way to transition off of that. And so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But I think that the access to easy free capital has gone away. And so there, there will be a shakeout that's coming. Yeah, that partnership, I think you were right, is very strategic in the short term. I know I currently have Amazon Prime, and I saw it on the front page of a, of my Amazon Prime to sign up for Grubhub for premium for a few months or six to 12 months free. There was some sort of time allotment that you had the premium for free. And I was like, oh, this is great. And from then on for a few months, anytime I decided to order something, instead of going to DoorDash or a different service, I would use Grubhub. So I think that was strategic in the short term. And now, you know, Amazon launched a competitor to Grubhub. Most people don't know that they had a delivery competitor to DoorDash and Uber Eats and Grubhub. And so I did not know. So they have this partnership. I mean, it's not that much of a stretch of imagination to assume that that the the partnership might be a step towards the direction of having their own service again. Who knows? But like, I, I mean, I think that that's going to be a big factor in the shakeout of which of those three parties ends up being the market leader. Yeah, we know with Amazon, they like to do a lot of stuff on their own. For example, with the Amazon Basics brands, the Solimo, which is their own multivitamins and stuff like that. So I think if there's a way to do it on their own and do it right, they will probably do it. Yeah. So you brought up a good point there. I mean, Amazon launched a, at my current business, Fixer, which is the on-demand handy person service. You know, Amazon has launched a competitor to that too. So like you can't, like you can't create a business without Amazon launching a competitor. So like you can't stress out about it too much. You just have to have a good strategy around creating most value for customers and and you beat them at their own game it's you have an advantage by doing one thing well compared to everything being everything to everybody and the hard part is they have them they can have a monopoly in many industries but that monopoly they do it so efficiently that it ends up being better for consumers majority of the time than if an individual business did it i know in terms of home services they did some sort of cleaning services where they'd have people come and clean your home for a short period of time not sure if they still do it but they do try to explore a lot of different industries and now transitioning here a little bit in the book hangry you talk about needing a personal definition of success. What was that personal definition for you and how did it motivate you to build Grubhub to IPO? So it started, it changed over the course of the time that I was at Grubhub. And it started out as, I just wanted to pay off my school debt. Between my degree, my I got two degrees at MIT, my wife got a degree at Boston University and then a graduate degree at Northwestern. We had 260 grand in school debt, which is not like most of your listeners will be familiar with this. It's horrible. <laughs> and at the time, so this was 2002, and I was looking at being paying off school debt until 2036, like a thousand bucks a month until 2036. It was insane. Like it's just this insane amount of money. And I was like, man, I got to have a plan. I got to figure out how to. And so once I started Grubhub and it was like doing well, I was like, oh, I might actually, like, might actually, you know, beat that. I might actually earn enough from this that I can pay off my student loans early. It turns out that I shot too low. I I hit that target and I overshot, but then I didn't have like, what is my goal going to be now? And so I took the company all the way through the IPO. Obviously, I sold my stock for a a premium. I made it in the book. I call it a Scrooge McDuck pile of cash, which is true. And like, but that's, those are not reasons why I think I was successful. A lot of other people think I was successful for those reasons. I was successful because 
I created a platform for independent restaurants and 80,000 independent restaurants on the platform competed with the big chains and beat them at their game. And they and they didn't have a disadvantage from a technology or operations perspective because we provided that for them. And I was incredibly proud of having done that. And so that was my definition of success. And when I talk to people about what it means to have a personal definition of success, I usually say it needs to be two things. One, it has to be explicit. It can't just be in your head. You have to say it out loud. You have to write it down. You have to, like, it has to be, you have to, you have to make it explicit. It can't just be a vague idea in your mind. The other thing is it should be unique. When you say it to people, they should disagree with you. When I tell people I wasn't successful because I had an IPO, but because I helped 80,000 independent restaurants, a lot of people are like, yeah, that's bullshit. I don't, I don't believe you. Like that, like you were successful because you had the IPO. If people disagree with your definition of success, it means you're onto something. It means that it's unique. It means that you've been intentional and thoughtful and explicit about the way you're going to go about living your life. And that's incredibly important. Yeah, I agree. And in the book, you talk about with merging with other companies, you go by the rule of how you have to make the other team think that your product or service is more valuable than theirs. And I think that it makes perfect sense, right? It's the concept of leverage. Chris Voss talks about it, FBI, former FBI negotiator. How do you build that leverage for maybe startup founders listening in the audience? How do you build that leverage in business negotiations? The first rule of mergers and acquisitions is don't be an asshole. (laughs) <laughs> it is really important yes. you don't skip the first rule because you're talking about somebody going from being, being from a competitor to a colleague and they have to like you. And so the first rule is just, it's, it's what we said at the beginning of this podcast, like relationships matter, right? And and actually our initial merger, our initial acquisition conversations with Campus Food failed because we went straight to what you said, which was like figuring out like how we can show our leverage. Bill Gurley, who was on our board from Benchmark Capital, he said, you know, it becomes this, the game of the dueling blowfish. Each party is trying to talk about how big and how great they are. And if you don't start from a place of mutual respect and understanding of each other and empathy with each other, it just becomes a bragging fest and the deal doesn't get done. And so once you start from a place of you trust each other and you think there may be something to do here, You need to talk about how your stuff is great without denigrating, without putting down the other other side. You can't talk about how their stuff is crap. You just have to be convincing about why you're different and unique and, 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 and bigger. And like, that was really important in the Campus Food deals. Now, later on, when we merged with Seamless, there was another piece of that, which was we had filed for to go public. We, we literally, at the time you had to deliver the 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 documentation to the SEC in in person. We literally had someone sitting in a cab outside the SEC ready to file the document as we were negotiating with Seamless. And that is a really good alternative. Like, you know what, you guys can either agree to this or we're gonna go in and and turn this in. Now, it was important that we didn't overplay that hand because we were we were right on the edge of being jerks when we were doing that. But it was real. It wasn't a fake. We were going to do an IPO if we didn't merge. And and we ended up scrapping that IPO, doing the merger and then doing an IPO later. But but having that leverage was, was important for getting the terms that we wanted out of the deal. Yeah, definitely. Great point. And now transitioning here, Grubhub was a software company and you are now building Fixer. For those in the audience who might not be familiar, what is Fixer and what's the mission behind it? So Fixer is a handy person service where you can use your phone as a remote control 
for your home. So you can do that with getting a car, you can do that with getting a pizza, and now you can do it to get a handy person into your home. The, the fundamental difference between our business and the others that have tried this is that we don't use contractors. The people who do the work are full-time employees. And so it has a lot of similarities to marketplace businesses like, like Thumbtack and Angie's List and Home Advisor and companies like that. But, but employing the supply of workers is a very significant difference. And it's an expensive difference. It costs us a lot of money to hire these people. And we train them from scratch. And the reason that we made that choice was the number of people that are entering the trades is not sufficient for the demand. There aren't enough tradespeople still doing the work compared to what people want from a home in the home. And so you can't get somebody to show up tomorrow for two hours because all of those people would rather book 40 hours worth of week doing a remodeling job or something like that. And so it's very, very hard to get handy people to show up for small jobs. And so we wanted to optimize towards that. So we had to train people from scratch to be able to do it. And there's a mission orientation to this too. It's not just a profit. There's a there's a purpose to it. We are trying to create an entry path into the trades that's really easily accessible in a gender inclusive way. Women and men can join our program and we and we are targeting a 50-50 ratio of that. And it's all very intentional because we're trying to increase the number of people in the trades and the diversity of people in the trades as we're doing this. Gotcha. And with Grubhub, the whole concept behind how you started it was wanting a pizza. How did you come up with this idea of founding Fixer? The gutter in my house was broken <laughs> and I wanted to fix it and I wanted to install a rain barrel. And I tried to find somebody to do it and I couldn't find somebody to do it. And I literally was like in the yellow pages again. And I was like, damn it, I did this 20 <laughs> years ago. I can't believe I'm doing this again. And I'm like, well, I guess that's my next business. And so that's, I mean, that was, there's a big part of that, that uh, it's just a pain in the neck for homeowners to get a handy yeah. person. Yeah, definitely. Great point. And what's the current business model for growing the platform? Have you thought about, you know, partnering with maybe other types of companies like Home Depot or stuff like that to make it easier to onboard fixers to expand the company quicker? So we we're, we can get fixers as quick as we want. It's really we we get we hire people from from Target and Starbucks and Whole Foods and we train them to have a career instead of a job. And so it's really easy for us to get applicants and to train gotcha. them. And so from the consumer adoption side, that's simply like a, a standard advertising approach where we're going out and we're getting consumers one at a time through advertising, through word of mouth, through referral, through search engine optimization, through partnership, through all of the, the Thumbtack and Angie's lists of the world. In terms of partnerships, I, I have found that for consumer businesses, partnerships are largely a waste of time. That um, it is far more effective to advertise to a consumer directly and try and convince them to use your product than to do it through a third party. And do, because doing it through a third party, they're they're selling their products, not yours. And so I don't find partnerships to be particularly valuable in building a consumer brand. That might just be because I'm bad at enterprise sales. I don't know. But but I, I'm doing this one one customer at a time is the way we're doing it. Yeah, I know Amazon, I can't remember the company they partnered with, but a long time ago, they partnered with a certain company and that company would advertise on their platform that had some sort of partnership agreement. But instead, Amazon just promoted their products instead. And that partnership ended up falling through and being completely useless. So in some cases, as you said, they will put their own priorities first ahead of, you know, other companies that they could have partnered with. And what were some of the lessons that you took from Grubhub that you're now implementing at, while building Fixer? I mean, I think one of the biggest ones is just being intentional. Like, we know exactly what it is we're trying to do from a mission perspective. We know what our values are. We know what our goal is every year. I know what my goal is for next year. And that idea of being intentional and, and focused is the biggest lesson 
The other thing is we just started. We didn't overthink it. Like we knew we were going to build a training program. We knew we were going to start training tradespeople from scratch. And we knew we weren't educators, but we did it anyway. Like we just started. And it takes a certain amount of arrogance to do that. But it also takes a certain amount of humility to recognize, okay, well, we just started, but we're not going to be good at it. So we have to learn. And those two things, the arrogance that it takes to say, I'm going to create something that nobody else has created and the humility to keep learning, they don't play well together. It's hard to be both arrogant and hum- humble at the same time. They are they are mutually exclusive perspective or attitudes. And so figuring that out, figuring out how to have the right amount of like, we got this and, the, and then also the right amount of like, we need help with this. It's a balancing act, but it's one that I've had a lot of reps on. I've had a lot of chances to do. And so those things have really helped. Obviously, consumer marketing, it's similar in both businesses. We're building a national brand, uh, one consumer at a time. But the education piece, the W-2 employee piece, that's all been a learning. That's all been a big learning curve to get to figure that stuff out. Totally. And before we wrap it up here, what would be your takeaways or key takeaways for startup founders in the audience? And where can they find more about your book, Hangry? My key takeaway is start. Start the thing. Start doing it. Don't, Don't wait. Don't overthink it. Don't like spend a ton of time doing market research, just just try it. See if you can sell a customer on your idea and make real money instead of asking people, would you buy this? Asking Ask people to actually buy it. That's, you know, that's the sort of the punchline of the book is be intentional and just start. You find out more about me at mikeevans.com. There's links to buy the book Hangry right there, or you can go find it on Amazon or Audible as well. Totally. And we'll have those links posted in the episode description down below for anyone interested in the audience and checking it out. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to leave a five-star review down below, share it with a friend. And thank you very much, Mike, for taking the time to join the show. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely.